right, teach by day. Friends of Feeney podcast by night, all day. You know where that's from, Dave? <laughs> all right, I'm here. It is episode eight. Uh, we had a wonderful episode seven. Seth Wickersham was a great guest. Um, I did some shout outs earlier and I missed someone. French cleaners made masks as well. French cleaners also made this wonderful shirt. Look at that embroidered shirt. Great for golfing. Uh, check them out, French cleaners. And they also have a wonderful display with Deswani showing their fall clothing. I love seeing friends collaborate. They're both Friends of Feeney sponsors. They're both wonderful businesses that care about our community. Done with the shout outs. Right to my friend Steve. I've known Steve for a long time. How you doing, Steve? Good. How are you doing? Steve, how you feel? I'm good. You look great. Thank you. So do you. <laughs> um, I just want to start off by, you know, we know we started off knowing each other professionally, and now we have a personal relationship, and I think you're a great person. Do you want to get into your profession? We're going to start right there. Yes. So I work at a company called Oak Hill in Hartford, which is the former Connecticut Institute for the Blind. And Oak Hill has many programs that it runs. And I work in one program of Oak Hill called NEAT, N-E-A-T. NEAT stands for New England Assistive Technology. And I've actually been employed there for just about 15 years now. And my title is Blind Services Vocational Manager. And what I do at NEAT is I work with a team of other individuals and we all have our specialty, if you will. And my specialty happens to be working with people with low vision all the way to people who are completely blind and also people who are deaf and blind. And what I do for these individuals is help them find assistive technology to help them be independent or employed in their daily lives. And you do a great job. And uh, neat, you know, is near and dear to my heart. You guys are like the transformers. You guys come together. You, like you said, you have all these different units. You have the chapter 126 that does fitness. You have neat. You have School of Oak Hill. And you all come together to this wonderful organization that helps people with many different abilities and disabilities. Correct? Yes, we do. We do. How's your boss? My boss is completely awesome. <laughs> really? You sure? <laughs> totally sure. All right. All right. Um, yep. Uh, my wife, Nicole Feeney, is the senior director at NEAT or, and uh, works And Steve. That's how we met. So that's our friendship was built there. And, and now we hang out on Thanksgiving. He does more chin-ups than me when we have a chin-up contest. Um, he's just a great person he has come and talked to our campers at High Meadow Day Camp our 7th and 8th graders learned about uh, abilities and disabilities and your guide dog Joel can't want to point out that you have your buddy with you yes I do I have a 10 and a half year old German Shepherd who is my guide dog his name is Joel and he is from an organization called Guiding Eyes for the Blind And, uh, and how long have you and Joel been together Eight and a half years. All right. So he came into my life when he was just two years old. Yeah. Joel's awesome. Oh, and, and learned a lot. I should not be mentioning his name, or right? It's okay. Okay. All right. And um, also learned something today. 
uh, you know, did some reading, but not really reading, but a Facebook meme came by. It was so funny that we're meeting um, that if a guide dog walks up to you and they're not with someone, you should follow that guide dog because maybe their person should needs assistance. Did you know that? Did you I, know that? I don't know. I did not know that, and I I think that it's probably a good idea to follow a dog, but I don't believe that my dog has any kind of training in its repertoire that would suggest that he might bring you back to me, but instinctually the dog probably would do that. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. What training does Joel have? So Joel is trained to keep me safe while we're moving. So if I'm walking and there's an obstacle in my way, he's going to stop before I crash into that obstacle or trip, you know, and his job is also to alert me to things like curb, up curbs, down curbs, up flights of stairs, down flights of stairs. He can find elevators, escalators, doorways. And if there's people in our way, he can safely navigate me around them. So he's always having to be looking where he's going and he's always having to think and make decisions about when we're going somewhere, is this a safe path? Oh, so wow. it's, it's a lot of work that he has to do. And he's also trained to do something called intelligent disobedience. So if I'm standing at a four-way intersection and I want to cross the street, I can't cross that street by looking at traffic lights because I can't see them. So Joel is trained that if I ask him to go forward and it is unsafe for us to do that, he's going to do one of two things. He's either not going to go or he's going to take his body and put it perpendicular to me in front of my feet so I can't go. Like come around and yeah. he's on my left Almost so he'll come around you. to my right. He'll block me. And it's my job to know when it's safe to cross the street, not his job. But if I make an error in my judgment or a car makes an error, then he's not going to go. They call that intelligent disobedience. That's amazing. And it's, I've had it happen with two of my dogs in my life where I've thought it was safe, asked the dog to go forward, and somebody does a right on red, you know, and that's dangerous. And uh, my first guide dog that I had, this goes back to 2003, I got her in July. And in December, we were walking on a walk that we had done hundreds of times. I was at my four-way intersection. I asked her to go forward. Someone did a right on red at least at 30 miles an hour. That dog went right in front. It happened so quickly. It was like snap of a finger. The dog was right in front of me. I couldn't go. The car went flying by. I was like, wow, that dog put her life on the line for me. We got across the street and I was like hugging the dog for like five minutes, you know, that she did that. That's and amazing. It, the other time that it can happen is like when you have sidewalk that continues to go forward, but it's going through driveway. So the sidewalk doesn't break up, you know. And so like if there's a parking lot and people are going out of that parking lot, we're walking. I'm not asking the dog to stop for any reason. There's no traffic lights there. But somebody could pull down that driveway right in front of us, you know, and that's happened to me because I walk on um, Tower Ave over by St. Francis and there's two driveways there where people can go in and out. And sometimes people are not looking at what they're doing. I'm walking down that hill and cars could pull right out. And it, it, ha it happened with us, with Joel and I at, at some point. 
that that happened. And he just, and I see, I could, I have a little bit of usable vision. So I could see him looking. I can see his ears go up and I could tell that he's looking at something, you know, like potentially like that. And wow. I've seen that happen where he's like, whoa, there's a car. I'm stopping. He's very cautious with that. Yeah, I want to I want to point out that now that it gets darker earlier, I feel that people are driving around at 5:30 like they think it's 10:30 because I've noticed when I'm walking my dog sometimes the pause at a crosswalk, they just assume people will not be out and people need to be more considerate when driving all over and obeying traffic laws and respecting pedestrians and um so I couldn't I I feel for you and I empathize with you um so that's just trying to connect. What about how does he communicate stairs and elevators? I'm very interested. So it's funny that you bring up the elevator thing. I <laughs> took him to West Farms a couple of weeks ago to give him something different to do because we've been basically quarantining and being in our neighborhood. And he is such a smart dog that he doesn't like routine which is unusual because a lot of dogs like routine. So if I take him on a walk for two or three days in a row, by the third day, he's totally bored. He's like, whatever. And so I took him to the mall and I had been to the mall with him maybe six months ago and we had to use the elevator. And so I told him, I knew we were up on the second floor and I knew we were sort of near the elevator. And I said, you know, to the elevator. And he took me to the elevator and I reached in. I have a treat pouch that I wear on my waist and I gave him a, a treat for finding the elevator. He took me right to the elevator and put his nose on the elevator door. So I'm like, ah, here's the elevator. So the other day when I was there with him a couple of weeks ago, we were walking and I had no reason to go to the elevator and he went right to the elevator, stopped and looked at me like, we're here, where's my treat? You know. <laughs> so um, I can ask him to the elevator, to the stairs, to the door. And when, when he gets to those things, he's going to stop. Obviously, with the stairs, he's going to stop because there's danger there. Like, if the stairs go up and he doesn't stop, I could trip going up the stairs. If the stairs go down and he doesn't stop, I might fall down the stairs. So he's going to stop. Even if I don't ask him, and I'll, I'll play tricks on him. Like, I know when I'm getting to the stairs somewhere that I know he knows. So I won't say to the stairs and he'll still stop because that's what he was trained to do. We, you stop because something in the environment has changed and I have to stop to indicate that to my person so that they know that. Wow. The other thing that he'll do is I like to take him for walks on Thursdays because in our neighborhood on Thursdays is trash day and people put trash cans in the middle of the sidewalk. And if they don't do it, the trash men will take the cans from the side of the road and put them back on the sidewalk. So when we're walking down a sidewalk that would normally have a clear path, we get to a trash can, he's going to stop so that I don't crash into the trash can. But when I ask him to go forward, he then has to think and make a choice about which way can both of us fit past that trash can without either of us touching the trash can or anything that's either on the left or on the right. So most of the time when I'm walking with him, the road is on our left. And the right may or may not be wide enough or safe enough to get by. So when he stops, I ask him to go forward. I'm not asking him to go left or right. That's not up to me to figure out because I'm the blind person. He's the dog. 
So he has to say in his brain, if we go to the right, can we both fit through without crashing into that trash can? If we can, he's going to pick and he's going to pull to the right when he, when, when he goes forward. If we can't, he's going to go to the road. But the road is always the last option. And they train these dogs to figure this all out. I don't know how they do it because I'm not a dog trainer, but I know that they make them figure this out. And I remember clearly when I had gotten my first guide dog on our second week of training, the trainer took us on a route that we had done before and it was trash day. And we did only a 10 minute walk and we got home and the dog crashed on the floor and like fell asleep. And I said, why is the dog so tired? And he said, because... When you make a dog think, that's what makes them tired quickly. You could run a dog forever and ever, run them and play with them. And if they're not thinking, you sure, they might be physically tired. But when, you ha- when they have to think and they have to make choices like that, that mental stimulation is what will make them tired. Did not know that. I, I did not know that either. That's fantastic. I did not know. And, and I learned that from, from my training with my first guide. And How many guide dogs have you had? Three. This nice. is the third. What is the average time spent with a guide dog? That depends on the dog and it depends like because it really is dependent on the dog and their health and, and all different kinds of situations. Like I've known people who have had to retire their dogs at four, five years old because they've been attacked by other dogs while they're working. I, I know someone personally this has happened to three different times uh-huh. where They've taken their dog to do a route that they normally do. There's been a dog off leash or even on leash that's attacked their dog. And the dog then associates working with that attack and they can't work anymore. And that's that's, that's really, really horrible. And it's inconsiderate of anyone to have a dog off leash, in my opinion. Totally agree. It's, it's dangerous and it's, it's a problem. And you you did you could see a little bit because when you walked in you mentioned uh, noticing the screen. What is your vision? So I have no usable vision in my right eye at all. So that's pretty easy to understand. That in my left eye I do have usable vision. The only way that I could describe it to you is I saw you take off your shirt. You had a white shirt on yeah and now it's black like those are two pretty extreme that's a lot of you know white and black are opposite so it's like high contrast i cannot identify who you are at the distance we are from each other with social distancing it's like a nightmare for me i cannot identify people and i can't tell who they are because when they're wearing a mask it sort of disguises their voice a little bit and i know people by voices and i've had people come into my office your wife came in my office and I didn't know who she was for almost a minute, but I never told her that because she had a mask on and it sort of muffles your voice a little bit. Don't worry. She won't know. She doesn't listen to my podcast. <laughs> well, I do listen to your podcast. But uh, so like when I go to the doctor to get my eyes checked, they have that eye chart on the wall yep. and whatever the distance is from the chair that you sit in the examination chair and the eye chart, the only thing that I can see actually on that chart on a good day might be the biggest letter at the top but usually what they do is they have that on a piece of paper and so they'll stand where that screen is and they'll start walking closer and check your distance yeah and and 
I can't really like if you had a probably a letter in your hand they use the giant E I don't think I would see it from the distance we are it would probably have to be like where this microphone is for me to really know what it is so everything for me is like really 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 far away so the pandemic has added extra challenges for you and Joel correct yes and I couldn't I mean, it's got to be stressful and, and people are annoyed and um, just put off. But, I mean, you know, I don't... There's it's, challenges everywhere. And I, everyone has their own challenges. I feel like... I feel everyone's stress. I feel like anxiety from everyone else. Because it just... There's so much fear. Every time I'm around people, it's like, am I far enough away? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? You know, and if, if I go out in public, it's just, it's just, it's just weird. I'm not used to that. No one's used to it. I, I, and the, and the hardest part for me with all of this is I know how I feel about it, but I don't talk about it with people because we're all in it. And I feel like there's nothing that I could say that anybody wants to hear. So unfortunately for me, I feel as though I'm internalizing a lot of it, and it's quite unhealthy. Um, that's why you have the chin-up bar. Well, yeah, that's true. But when I get into uh, realms like this, it's like I sort of don't want to do anything either. So it's, it's been tough. But fortunately, the thing that I have in my life that's not changed is the dog. And we were working from home starting in March. And it got really confusing for the dog because I'd get up in the morning and I would turn on the laptop and the dog would get really fidgety because he would be thinking, wait a minute, how come you're not putting on the harness? How come we're not going up the hill? How come we're not being being around people? And he would start just, you know, pacing around the apartment and just being really fidgety. Oh man, the dog's feeling it too. Yeah, and so I, I... saw this happen for a couple of days and I said, you know what? I have to give him things to do. I have to give him structure. I have to give him stability. And it was probably the best medicine that I could have because the dog doesn't know there's a pandemic. The dog doesn't know about a virus. He doesn't know about social distancing. He just knows me and and people, right? So I started making sure that every day we went for a walk and like figuring, okay, how can I make the walk different? How can I change the route we're doing? How can I change it up? How can I play with him differently? What can I do to make his world somewhat the same as it was? And that is a huge good distraction for me to have. Even now that the weather's getting colder, I still have to do things with him. He, I can't do nothing with him. He wasn't raised. He wasn't born. His genetics are he's a working dog. And if I don't do anything with him for like two days, I know that there's a problem. I can tell by his behavior. He'll start getting up and following me around. And, you know, he wants things to do. This summer, he had to have two surgeries for a non-cancerous tumor that we found under his right in between his two front legs like right here and it basically it was right where the harness goes so putting on the harness it was hurting him and i took him for a walk and he was turning and looking at me and i'm like why are we stopping you know like i didn't understand 
And so I went on vacation. I came back and my dog sitter said, did you know about this lump on him? And I said, no, I didn't know. So I took him for a surgery and the surgeon was unable to do the surgery. When she got into him, she said, I cannot remove this mass because it's tangled up in muscle and bone. So I need to, you need to take him to a specialist. So they put him back together and she said, he can't work for two weeks. He can't have any physical activity for two weeks. Wow. And I was like, what am I going to do? So my dog sitter, Stacy Chung, who I'm publicly mentioning by name, said to me, I will take your dog for you and I will, I will keep him for the two weeks and I will um, give him a comfortable place to recover from surgery. And this woman is outstanding and, and unbelievable to me because I only met her this past summer and she offered to do this for me because I didn't want to leave him home with me because every time I would get up, he would get up because he wanted something to do or he felt like I needed for him to do something and they didn't want him doing anything physical. The first day he came home, like the, the morning after he had had surgery, he was getting up and following me. I'm like, you can't do that. Like, and I didn't want to turn it into me getting on his case for doing that. So Stacy took him for two weeks. Well, Stacy, I want to thank you for being a good friend. That's the motto. That is a friend, right, Steve? It's absolutely a friend. And then who filled in for Joel in the, during those two weeks? The white cane filled Ooh. in for Joel. And I sat on my butt and didn't do anything while Joel was gone, right. except to be upset that the thing that was getting me through the pandemic now wasn't there. So then he came home. We had the hurricane. We lost power for eight days. Oh. <laughs> And uh, we had generator. It was actually kind of fun. When it rains, it pours. It does. Yeah, it does. It was. It was kind of fun. We were like barbecuing on the grill and stuff. But uh, so the, a couple days after the hurricane, Joel went down to the Newtown Veterinary Specialist, and a guy named Dr. Jason Hedrick did surgery on Joel, and he thought Joel was the most beautiful German Shepherd he'd ever seen in his life, and he said to me, "Joel will be good as new in two weeks." So Stacy Chung said, I'll take him for you. So she took Joel for eight days and then she brought him back. But the reason I brought all of this up is two reasons. One, Stacy's an outstanding person. I met her in June. She didn't know me. She didn't know Joel. But she's a volunteer for Guiding Eyes and she, she dog sits for people. And so this is what she does in, in her personal life. But when she had Joel the first time after the, the first surgery where they could not remove the lump, she called me like on day 10 and she said, I've got to get this dog back to you because I'm starting to do some leash walking with him on the grass and he's pulling me to the road. He wants to go for a walk and he wants to work. And when she brought him home, I picked up the harness so that we could check to see where the buckle was going to be in terms of where the incision was. And mm -hmm. the dog jumped in the air to get into the harness. Oh my God. And I took him for a walk and he hurt me. I couldn't keep up with him. My legs and my calves were killing me. He was, pull my arm was out like this. He was pulling so hard. He just, he wanted to work. He was just excited to be with he you. He just, he wanted to work. He wanted to be with me. It was just incredible. And that's so fantastic. That's what a, you know, a genetically, that's what a working dog. That's what they do. They want to work. Well, Joel's a beautiful dog. And thanks to Dave and his skills, we set up a doggy cam. 
Um, if you wouldn't mind, can you show a couple um, commands? Or yes. just the, the, the camera's going to be over here towards me. Yep. There's a door to your left. Joel. I don't know if you want to do something with the door. Sit. Down. Did you notice he got up? You're filming this. Did I this. say something? No, you said nothing. He has an internal clock like no one's business. It's dinner time. <laughs> oh. And, and we're not even around a clock right now, and he knows that. What time do you think it is? It's got to be between 5.30 and 6 p.m. <laughs> I, I, it's, what time is it? 5.50. Yeah. He's he, on he, the head. It, and normally I feed him at like 5.40 because I, I just can't take it anymore <laughs> with him. And I have, a, I have 20... 20 21 cuckoo clocks in my house, two grandfather clocks, four mantle clocks. All the clocks chime and make noise at 15-minute intervals. And he knows like when it's like 45, like 545, because he recognizes the clocks. You're skipping ahead. I was going to get to I'm that. I'm sorry, but I, that, I wanted to say that That's the best. what surprises me about this is there's no clocks here, and he still knows that I didn't feed him. I mean, I love you. It's like a clock museum. <laughs> and I was there on the hour, and it is amazing. I mean, I don't understand how you sleep. We're going there, so let's go okay. there. Clocks. So, the, so go back. The, You've how many? 22? 20, 20, 21 cuckoos, three or four mantle clocks, two grandfather clocks, and a wall clock. It keeps growing. And they're beautiful, custom made, like a couple yeah. from Germany. Yeah, all the cuckoos are from Germany. They you know a store that makes them and have a good connection with. Yeah. I, I know lots of repair people, too. Oh, yeah. Repair people. <laughs> I mean, it's a party. Every hour, it's a party. Pretty and much. Do, so, they, do you have it set where they don't go off during the night? Or no. Do they, they go no. off during the night? No, I want them going off all the time. What, what makes you... What's, what do you like about it? Every clock that I have, I have because of the way they sound. Like, I've never gone online and purchased one. Because all you could get is the picture. When I was uh, a kid, my dad used to take me to a place in Waterbury called the Clockmaster. Yes, it was Waterbury. On, Sorry, yeah. I got to shout him out. Waterbury, yeah. born and raised. Go ahead, continue. So <laughs> I used to go there every Friday after Thanksgiving before it was known as Black Friday. And we would go there and they had a whole wall full of cuckoo clocks. And I would make the sales guy like set off certain ones. And I never bought one that I didn't like the way it sounded. Now, Waterbury has a Timex building. Does it have something to do with the Timex building? No. In fact, the place that I used to go, that, that place where I got most Was it of just them, a store? It was a store, and it, it no longer exists. Oh, what street was it on? Wolcott Street. Oh, all right. It was past when you The were, mall, the old mall? It was when you go past the mall, you know how they had ShopRite? Like Shop going right, down? Yeah. It was like past ShopRite. There's a. Arby's? It was on the corner, pie plate? Past that, like going down. Dominic and Pia Pizza? Down. Scoreboard? Keep yeah, going. like keep going. Like you know where Shoprite was on the left, Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, like down, like down, towards going towards downtown more. Yes, oh, yes, wow. yeah. That yeah, there's the, a corner the there. The business that it was is kind of stopped down there. Yeah, it was like right at the end of where the businesses stop. It was on the corner of. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's not. It's, it hasn't been there for many, many years. But so I would pick out three clocks that I liked, and I would say, Dad, I like that one. Dad, I like this one. But Dad, 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 do you see that one right there? Dad, that one. <laughs> Very transparent. He would say, okay, I'll have to talk to your mother when we get home. And Christmas would come. And 
I would open up all my presents. We would all open our gifts on Christmas morning and there would never be a cuckoo clock there. And then we, <laughs> everything would get cleaned up. Somebody would disappear, either mom or dad, and they would come back with a box. And it would always be the clock that I wanted. But before they would give it to me, before anybody would go get the box, they would say, listen, you know, we're really sorry, but, you know, we have to, money's tight. You know, we have to be able to buy presents for your brother and you. And we just, you know, we just couldn't afford it this year. And I'm like, it's, it's okay. And then they would, they would return with a box. So every Christmas from like 1986. So you fell for this joke every Christmas that they don't have money? I love they it. were very no, believable. I think it, I were, think it was a, an amazing, touching story, and uh, uh, I thought they would leave and make it go off so you could no. hear it. <laughs> no, like oh, that's the clock that I wanted. No, but it would be in the box. It was brand new in the box, and, it, and those are quite pricey, right? They're yes. Can you go average price? Between I would say two hundred and two thousand dollars. Depending on what you get. Yeah. Not back in those days, they weren't quite that high, but that's what they are now. So can you go on Antique Roadshow? Uh, it's a show that sells old items for right. big time, big bucks. What's your most valuable? The Actually, in terms of money, I have one. I bought a grandfather clock when I first moved to Hartford, and that is the most valuable thing one that I have just because it's it was a $5,000 clock but when I got it it was before Christmas and they had a sale it was 50% off and it was a lot of grandfather clocks are made by Howard Miller they're a very well-known clock company and I almost bought a Howard Miller grandfather clock but the salesman said to me I want to show you this clock it's made by a company called Henschel and they're out of Vancouver and they only build these clocks when someone orders one. So if you buy this clock, you're not going to get it for about three months because they're literally going to go in the woods, cut the tree down or, you know, get the wood and then build the clock. And wow. I got that one because of that. You know, I'm like, I know I could get a Howard Miller, but like, I want this one. So Howard Miller is a good one. What's yes. another couple good? Um, Seth Thomas. Is I've got several Seth Thomas mantle clocks and a Seth Thomas grandfather clock that my grandparents had. That's what really got me into this whole clock thing when I was six years old. My grandparents got a grandfather clock as a gift, and my grandfather taught me how to wind the clock and all about the chimes. And it just, I just was, we would wind it every Sunday, and that just, I couldn't stop. So you wind <laughs> it on Sunday, it would last the week? Yes, yeah, it run, runs for eight days. Oh, very nice. And would you be able to go in the back and adjust when it chimes? Do you, do you, can you adjust the times? Like you have them t chiming at different times. Is there a possibility that you can go in and get them to all chime at the same time? It's hard to do that. Some of them you can, the grandfather clocks you can, the cuckoo clocks are really hard to do because the grandfather clock has the pendulum that's that thing that swings back and forth. Yep. And there's a ball on that pendulum, it's called the pendulum bob. And underneath that ball, there's a, there's a screw with a nut. And when you turn the nut, you're either raising that bob or you're lowering it. Yep. If you raise Which it, the clock will the run faster. Pendulum. If you lower yep. it, it goes slower. So because you can turn that nut, you can make a clock like that pretty much run within a minute of the time or even better. Oh. With a cuckoo clock, the bob and the stick is made out of wood. So you have to slide it down. So if it 
if it gets loose, you might it might drop too far, so it's not as precise. So the grandfather clocks, I pretty much have both of my grandfather clocks running at exactly the time I want them to be. And I don't really have to adjust them very often. The cuckoo clocks is a whole different story. Uh, my father-in-law was moving, and they said the most important thing to do when you move, when you take those pendulums out, label left and right, because they're like an ounce or two off. Oh, the weights, yes. And if you put them back in you know, the wrong, wrong side, yes. you're messing up the entire yep, because pendulum. Each weight has a function to it. And it's like so. You, it's not like you could just pick it up. Oh, this one's heavier. Like it's like so precise. Yep. So label them. Very, very true. Hint. Our <laughs> tip, pro tip of the day from Steve, the clock guru. If you um, label them, or that's actually not even from your tip. That's my tip. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Feeney's tip of the day. Yeah. <laughs> if you would have a clock tip, what's your or clock just, tip? Just call me. All right, Steve Flamageti <laughs> at Steve with Neat on Twitter, right? Yes. We're going to get you some clock followers. Oh. You got to get a side, a side hustle. <sighs> Clocks. Yeah, I do. We'll start with clock podcast, clock Twitter page. Or we could talk about my other hobby. Yes. Oh, right. You want to get into it? Yeah. So you mentioned Nicaragua earlier. I did. You mentioned weather. I did. You mentioned wind. I did. Uh, so I am a storm chaser. Oh. Or I, I shouldn't say it like that. I'm somebody who goes on storm chase trips. And uh, I've always been fascinated by weather. The same grandparent who got me into clocks kind of got me into the weather. My grandfather, my grandpa Rocco, was he was very into nature. He had a garden that he would do. And he was always pointing things out to me like outdoors. And we would sit on his front porch and eat ice cream and like listen to the crickets. Or if there was a thunderstorm, we would sit out and like watch and listen to the thunderstorm. And he would, he would point out things like in National Geographic magazine, one year they had an article about hurricanes and they listed every major hurricane that hit the United States since like 1900. And I would walk around like seven years old, like telling people this. And of course, none of my... Um, peers cared about that kind of stuff <laughs> and I drove people crazy and I would make him read me that National Geographic like every time I saw him grandpa read this to me he's like I just read it to you the other day read it to me again I would drive the man nuts <laughs> and I was afraid of like hurricanes and thunderstorms and tornadoes like every time it would get we would have thunder I would I would be afraid of it like I was very afraid of thunder the louder it was the more I was afraid of it and but as I got older, it was like I wanted it to happen more. It was really weird. Like I was afraid of it, but I like wanted it to be happening. And when I got into high school, we had, you know, you take four years of science when you're in high school. And so like freshman year, we did earth science. Sophomore year, we did biology. But our junior year, there was a guy who developed his own science curriculum in meteorology. And that's what you took when you were a junior. He... This man wrote his own course for juniors in high school. His name was, is John Bajoni, and he lives in Burlington, Connecticut. And I took his meteorology course when I was a junior in high school. I got a 100 in the course. I loved it, and I would watch the Weather Channel all the time. And because of Mr. Bajoni, I wanted to be a meteorologist. 
I ended up going to Western Connecticut State University and taking 21 credits of meteorology from the, the gentleman who ran that program was Dr. Mel Goldstein, who used to be on Channel 8. Dr. Mel. He died of uh, cancer in 2000, early 2012. I knew Dr. Mel in the early 90s. He, he developed and ran the meteorology program at Western Connecticut State University, where I graduated from. And so while I was at Western doing meteorology, I really did not have a good chemistry, physics, or math background. That stuff didn't speak well to me. Um, and you really needed to have a math minor to get a degree in meteorology. So I ended up changing my major to communications, and I was really angry about that for a long time. And I stopped doing a lot of my weather stuff because I was so mad that I couldn't get the major. And I graduated and I got into the assistive technology field and my college roommate and I, he was a meteorology major and we, you know, we graduated and life went on and he starts emailing me one day. He goes, did you know that you could pay a whole bunch of money to go like chase a tornado? <laughs> and I <laughs> said, who would be dumb enough to do that? Like that seems dangerous. And he kept sending me links to different companies that did this. And so in 2008, he and I went on our first storm chase together at, with a company called Tempest Tours. And basically these companies exist and you can find them on the internet and they will take you to places where there are gonna be storms. And what they do is they teach you about meteorology. They teach you about how storms form, which storms are more likely to produce tornadoes, um, and, and the different atmospheric conditions that need to come together for this to happen. And so they, they, they do lectures each morning where they're teaching you these things. And then you get in the vans and you go to what they call their target. Like they pick a target based on all the weather data that comes in and you drive to that target. So if you're in Colorado and there's going to be a storm in Kansas, guess what you're doing? You're driving from Colorado to Kansas. So I've... Started, How long are these adventures? Two uh, weeks? Three six, weeks? seven, or ten days. Okay. And actually, there's some now that you can even do four days because a lot of people can't necessarily get out of, you know, get away from work for that long. And I started in 2008 with Tempest Tours. I chased with them for two years. And I now chase with a company called Silver Lining Tours. The gentleman who owns and operates that company is Roger Hill. All right, let's play a game. Hold on. It's called First, Last, Best, Worst. Your first tornado chase, your last, most recent, your best one, and your worst one. You can uh, start wherever you want. First, I last, can, best, worst. All right. Go. I can tell you the first tornado I ever saw was with Roger Hill in 2010. It was, I don't remember the date. I believe it was either the very end of April, very beginning of May, and it was in Washington County, Kansas. And interestingly enough... I just did a chase with Roger in June of this year, and we ended up in Washington County, Kansas. And I said, hey, Roger, do you remember that this was where I saw my first tornado? He goes, yes. And Roger's like a walking encyclopedia. Like, he remembered that. He's your buddy that emailed you? That, from college? Your uh, college classmate no, no, that emailed Roger's, you? No, Roger's the else. guy who owns the company. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. Alan is my friend. I didn't mention his name. Alan is my buddy who got me into this. Um, so 
it was very interesting that I finally got back to Washington County, Kansas. And I remember, I'm like, Roger, do you remember that was my first training? He's like, yep, I do. And he, he gave me like the date and the time and everything. Always good. Um, first, that was first. Last, best, worst. The, la- the last one was this this past June. I was able to go and chase, um, even though there's a pandemic happening right now, at that time, the number of COVID cases in the Midwest was like less than 1%. And we, we were able to, to do it and be safe and everything. And it was, it was, it was weird, but it was good. Like it was good to just get out and move around and do you feel a rush? Do you feel the energy? Do you feel uh, the wind? Do you feel, what do you, everything? It's funny. I don't like rain. So as soon as it starts raining, I'm like the first person that gets back in the van. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny. What was the best? Come on, the best one. I don't. You know what? There, you had a tie for a best. I, I, I can't even. They're just all fantastic. They're, they're, they all. There's different things that happen on every one of them that make them the best. Like this year, it was the best because I got to get out of my house for two weeks in a pandemic and and be around people and be going places. Mm. I hadn't been anywhere for like you know like anybody else like three months. So it it felt really good this year, and I also got to go to um, North Dakota this year, and we spent a couple of days up in Bismarck, North Dakota, up there, and I had not been in North Dakota for that long, so that made it special. Um, what was the? You're chasing I, tornadoes. There's got to be a tough story. I mean, the worst. I hopefully it's not just the rain. Come on, give me something good. You know what? The worst year that I chased in was 2009. They had a drought in the plains, and we had one or two days where there was even storms to chase. But I met some phenomenal people on that particular tour. We had such a good time laughing, laughing <laughs> all the time. Uh, when I go on these tours, you know, I don't bring my dog with me, so people see me with the white cane. And the first couple of days, like no one asks me anything because people are nervous and they don't know you. And on that particular tour, I think it was like day three and everyone had started drinking <laughs> because there was like nothing to do. And so we ended up in some restaurant and someone said to me, I'm not going to repeat this exactly how they said it, <laughs> but they said, why, what are you doing here? You can't see what is it about this that would even interest you as someone who can't see and i had to explain to them that i love lightning i love hail and i want to see a tornado like even if i can't see it i'm sure we'd be close enough that i could hear it and i i like everybody else's enthusiasm for weather and that's why i do it and now really with roger as our tour guide he owns a company called silver lining tours which i might have mentioned earlier but Roger has been chasing tornadoes for 30 some odd years and he can tell you every tornado he saw, everything it did, what the date was, everything. When you put that man in front of a storm or a tornado, he's passionate, enthusiastic, he's yelling, he's sometimes swearing, it is <laughs> so much fun. I laugh at Roger and it just feels good. You know, it's it's hard to explain, but I mean, it's, it's it exciting. keeps us sane. Everyone needs a hobby, everyone needs you know, something fun to do. You have a common interest. You're among people that are all excited about the same thing. I mean, that's how friends or friendships are formed. I think that's great. I think that's a great thing you're doing. I give you a lot of credit because I'm not chasing storms. You could come chasing with me one year. There's nothing. 
what they do when you're chasing is they have a radar. You know, they've got a laptop with a good connection to the, you know, data. And they're looking at the radar. And that's overlaid with GPS and a road network. There's between 10 and 25 people on any given chase. The people who run the company are not going to put anybody in unnecessary danger. So Roger will be looking at the radar and you can see where the hail is in the ra- on the radar. You can see that and he can tell how far away that is. And we're not going into baseball size hail. We're not doing that because it's going to break all the windows in the van and then you can't chase. And if you think about it, a baseball size hailstone is falling from 50,000 feet or higher. If that hits you, that's going to kill you. Whoa. You don't, you know, we don't want that. Now, this is not to say that Mother Nature couldn't throw a curveball, but in general, they have that information at their fingertips and they're not going to take an unnecessary chance with 10 or 20 people. You know, if he goes out chasing on his own, he might take a lot more risks than he would when he's got paying guests on a tour, you know. Um, So I've talked to people who have gone chasing with friends of theirs, like after they've gone on a chase with a company. And they've told me that they were scared because they felt like the people that were in charge didn't know what they were doing, didn't know what they were looking at. And I know that Roger and the other tour guides know what they're looking at. And when he says, we have five minutes and we're leaving, we're leaving. You get in the van and you you go. You don't wait until, you know, like they're closing the door in the van. I feel like there's a newspaper article or you were on the news about this. Yes. Um... Was two it, or three years ago. Was it newspaper or TV? It was TV. It, actually, it was last last November, Channel 61. Jen Bernstein came to my house the day before I went chasing, and she did a story on me, and it was aired last November. Very nice. Uh, yeah. You got to send me the link. I'll put it on the link of the podcast. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then I also want to link Tempest Tours and Silver Lining Tours. Yes. And what about the dog link? Guiding Eyes for the Blind is the name of the school where Guiding Joel is from, and I can give you a link for that, too. And you have been mentioning so many fun hobbies. Um, there are people, you know, someone in my family, the, you know, I'm just going to stay in the house and you're so busy. You know, you got to get out there and do things. Right, Steve? Yeah. yeah. And people need to follow in your footsteps and get out, go past their comfortability level, challenge themselves. Um, and I really look up to you when you do that. You chase storms. Uh, so if you hear something in the woods ruffling around or something in the basement, are you going in the basement to go look? Or are you going in the woods? No. But yet a humongous tornado, <laughs> you're like, hey, let me go check this out. So I got that clear? I just want to say, <laughs> I keep telling Roger, can we please find the mile-wide tornado in the field? I want to see one like that so bad. <laughs> and what It about- hasn't happened yet. Tornadoes in Kansas. Anyone drop any cheesy jokes about some famous movie? Twister. <laughs> Twister. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something about Twister. If it weren't for Twister, there would be no storm chase companies. This is what got people started like wanting to do this as a hobby. Oh, wow. As much as I dislike that movie because there's too many fake things in it, I am so glad that it happened. And there is a town in Kansas where there's a Twister museum that you can go to. And Roger doesn't like to go there because he's been there like 10,000 times. He's like, we're not going to the Twister Museum. (laughs) That's awesome. And there's a place called Dorothy's House in Kansas, too, that you can go to. That was the movie I was thinking. 
Oh, the Wizard of Oz. There's a twister coming, a twister. And and every year when we do the chases, you know, you do orientation like the first night. And so they're asking you, like, what got you into chasing? So many people say when they saw the tornado in the Wizard of Oz, they wanted to see one. That's gotten so many people hooked on chasing. They wanted to land on the uh, fairy godmother's sister. On the other side. Yeah. Go from black and white to color. That Yes. So we're going down the line. We did our hobbies. You did your job. Oh, back to your job quickly. If there, if you were to give three suggestions on someone that was aspiring to be the manager of blind vocational services, what three suggestions would you give that person? Be open-minded. Good one. Think out of the box. Remember that one size does not fit all. Man. Have you been asked that question before? No. Great answer. Can you repeat them? Those were fantastic. Think outside the box, be open-minded, and remember that one size does not fit all. As a teacher, I think that is an amazing answer, and that could fit with pretty much a lot of other occupations. But thank you. Words of wisdom from Steve. We also now, being a teacher for 17 years, uh, you mentioned your teacher uh, that got you interested in weather. Um, I would, we, we talk about it. Your favorite moment with a teacher? Uh, a teacher that inspired you, a teacher that, you know, really helped lead you to who you are today. Uh, do you have someone you'd like to talk about? I have too many, actually. Um, <laughs> but Mr. Bajoni definitely, and I've actually reconnected with him because he, not only was he a teacher, but he used to write the weather forecasts for a lot of the towns. Like the towns would hire him and he would work with the superintendents and he still does this. His business is called Facts Alert Weather, I believe. Oh, give me that link too. We'll add that to the end of the podcast. Yeah, so and... Is he still currently teaching? No, he retired. What? And uh, where did you grow up? Wolcott. Yeah, again, I'm from Waterbury. Yeah. You're our evil next door neighbor. Why? We didn't like Wolcott people. Really? You're lucky I like you. And I'm kidding. <laughs> so you're a Wolcott eagle? I Yes, I used to have a... I, did I? Yes, I had a jacket from that from high school. I don't know whatever happened to now, Eagles. Also, true or false? How many other people had visual um, needs in your school at, at the time that I was in school? Yeah. None. None. I actually was the first person in Wolcott to go to public school. I started school in 1977, I think. Seventy. Yes, and. Because before then, you know, in the in 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 the olden days, if you were blind, you couldn't go to public school. That that was not a thing. You had to go to you had to go to Oak Hill, where I now work. Which at that time, Oak Hill was a school for blind children. Children went to school there, K through twelve, and then they passed the idea, right? Right, IDA. and then yes, and then that got passed. And so I happened to that be was like seventy six. That was passed, and you were joined a seventy eight. Yes, and. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Please. I had something called a t- someone called a teacher of the visually impaired. You see, this dog is like all over the place. He's, He's like, hungry. "Where's my dinner?" Uh, I'll feed him off camera. So, um, <laughs> I had a teacher of the visually impaired (TVI). So anyone can go to school, get a master's in special ed, and 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 then you do you, master's in special ed slash TVI. You can get that from UMass Boston. I had a teacher of the visually impaired who worked for the state of Connecticut. Her name was Barbara Waterman. And she started with me when I was four years old. And I went through kindergarten. And at the end of the school year, there was a PPT meeting. 
that my parents were at and she was at and the school's at to, to plan for next year. So they wanted me to go to a year of transitional school before first grade. And my mother was very upset by this because she felt that I should go to first grade. So she called Miss Waterman and she said, I don't understand this transitional business. I have an older son who's not blind and I have Stephen who's my you know younger son, me. And I feel that he's done everything that he needed to do in kindergarten based on what I know about my older son and, and that he's mature enough and I want him to go to first grade. And Miss Waterman said to my mother, listen, off the record, you don't have to sign anything that they're giving you. You don't have to agree to anything they're giving you. If they don't want him to go to first grade, it's because they're not ready for that. And that's not your problem. That's their problem. So if you want this to happen, this is what you need to do. So not only was she a teacher for me, but she helped my family every year that I was in school advocate for things like that. Because yeah. there was no one that would do that. That just gave me the chills. How she can advocate. Teachers care that much. Well, she's going out of a limb and against almost the norm to, to give you that advice and to make sure that you're getting the best education that you can. I Shout could, out to Mrs. Miss Waterman. Is she still around? You still? No. Oh. She passed away in 2009. I did not know that. But I was able to get in touch with her roommate and I was able to um, communicate with her and she told me several stories about how Miss Waterman was so fond of me because she knew me from four years old until I graduated from high school. Like, and I had seen her a couple times even after, you know, even in the early 2000s, I'd seen her. And I actually have a note in my pocket that we found that was in my grandmother's box of pictures when my grandmother passed away. My mom was going through stuff, found a note that Miss Waterman had written from 1978, and I have it in my pocket. And I shared it with your wife one day, and it made her cry. Because I can only imagine. I'll share it with you off, off camera. It's in your pocket right now. It is, yes. So you carry it with you all the time. I, it's, it, <laughs> yes. No, that's amazing. That's yes. the difference that teachers make. Teachers, you know, don't make a lot of money, but we make an impact, a positive impact. And uh, that teacher made a difference in your life. And, I mean, I'm just honored hearing that story. Uh, there's so many teachers out there doing the same thing that she did. Um, and it's amazing that you were the first on the entire public school of Wolcott, Connecticut, that was visually impaired. Yep, I was the first. So there was. You're like, I mean, is it a bad comparison that you're like the Jackie Robinson of. No. Have you met, heard that one before? No. <laughs> it's the first time for everything, right? You're, no, she, she many, many times. I'll tell you one other quick story. We were doing learning to read, and there was a small book that she could not get in large print. Part of her job was to get hold of my textbooks and they had to get sent away to get put into large print. And it took months for that to happen. And there was something that we were doing and I was sitting with her and I was doing some independent work and she had masking tape and a pen and she was writing and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm rewriting this book for you because I want you to be able to have the same book that everyone else is gonna have. And so I'm just, I'm just rewriting it so you could read it. It was very matter of fact the way she said it, but she, it was a book about kittens and cats and she wanted me to be able to see the, the pictures of the animals in the book and she knew she couldn't get it enlarged so she rewrote the whole book 
wow. while we were sitting there. Like she would do things like that. On a Saturday, she took me to the clock museum in Bristol because she knew I liked clocks. On a Saturday. Going above and beyond. Always, always. Even after I graduated from high school and if I would call her and I would tell her something that I was doing, she would always say something like, did you know that if you look here, you can find this? I, that's not, you, do you know what I'm saying? Like Giving you advice she was and suggestions, always leading you in the right direction. Teaching me like where could I go to learn more about something constantly. So she advocated for you and looked out for you from four to? High school. Till, till I graduated from high school. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And she never raised her voice. I know that I got under her skin a few different times for things. I exasperated her. In my career, I've had students with visual needs, and I've had the enlarged textbooks. We had the sit closer to the front. What about, what would you offer suggestions coming from a student that had visual needs going up? What can, advice can you give to a teacher? Again, even to the, like I think I said this earlier, like thinking outside the box and, and like never, don't be afraid to try something. I used to wear glasses when I was younger, and they really didn't do anything for me. They were very thick. And I think it was more, we were really worried about not getting poked in the eye because this is my good eye, this is my bad eye when I was a kid, you know. Couldn't see out of this one, so this is bad, this one's good. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone wanted me to wear glasses so nothing would ever get into my eye. But they didn't really help me. But one year, my optometrist gave me like a little clip-on telescope. And I could read the board with it for the first time so I could watch the teacher teaching maths I was actually able to learn how to do long division with this little telescope but I also had a paraprofessional that worked with me and she was another phenomenal person her name was Mrs. Tata and I used to drive that woman I used to make her laugh all the time but we were doing long division and she was sitting with me one day and she said to me you're 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 moving everything all over the page because it's not being lined up. You know, when you do long division, it's all got to be like oh, yep. lined up, I guess. I don't remember. <laughs> so she took a piece of graph paper with the squares and she rewrote the problem. And she said, do you see how I put each number in each square? Uh -huh. She said, I want you to follow what I did and do all your numbers in the square because then you're going to keep... Everything is going to be lined up. Yep. This is amazing to me. It worked. Okay. She's, she was not a teacher. She's a paraprofessional. She took that to my classroom teacher, Mr. England, who is another absolutely phenomenal teacher. She showed it to him and he said, you know what? I'm going to do this with the entire class. Oh, yeah. Because everyone writes long division a mess. And he, and he said, I think this is going to help the entire class. So he thought outside the box too and he was willing to take a suggestion I don't know anything about school politics but I wonder how it is when someone who's not a teacher goes to a teacher and says hey I tried this and it worked and he's like I'm doing it no didn't even think he's like this is perfect shout outs to uh, the paraprofessionals uh, everyone that I've worked with especially currently they're amazing they care so much about their student um, they'll you know they sometimes sacrifice their lunch. Sometimes 
They do things that aren't even in the in the contract, and they're amazing people. And thank you. This is almost like a podcast of teachers and paraprofessionals. <laughs> you constantly with the shout outs, and I think that's great. Uh, you know, they're special people, um, and thank you for sharing all these wonderful stories. Oh, I, and don't we, stop. Keep going. We, we could we could probably do like four podcasts. I, I'm not. Let's go. Keep going. I, I have so many things that I could tell you. I mean. It, two for the two teachers though. Let's talk about the AVI. Is it AVI TVI, teacher? Teacher of the visually impaired. TVI. TVI. And um, the weather. The, teacher. Me, the Mr. Names Bajoni. again. What yeah. do you got? Mr. Bajoni. Mr. Bajoni. John, John Bajoni. Thank you, John. Um, when I reconnected with Mr. Bajoni, um, I wrote him an email and I said, "Hey, I got your email address because he his." forecasts get emailed to the schools and one of my best friends teaches in the school that I grew up in now he's a music teacher and he forwarded me one of Mr. Bajoni's forecasts so I wrote Mr. Bajoni an email I said I don't know if you remember me or not but I'm this is who I am and he wrote he wrote me this long note and he goes I I remember you and he mentioned like two or three other students he goes when I had you guys I feel like you all were so passionate like it, you, you were the highlight of my career wow but I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to go back to a teacher and say, do you realize what you did for me? Like I had 99% of my teachers were good teachers. I had one teacher that was horrible, but the rest of them were amazing. And I, I just kind of wonder like if I were a teacher, I'd probably wonder like how my students were doing in 20 years, you know, and I'd kind of like to know like, how did they turn out? And I we, think for me, because of all the challenges that I had, as especially as a child, I didn't know how to communicate to a teacher what I needed. I didn't even know what I needed. That was Miss Waterman saying, here, when I couldn't read the pencil that they were using, she went to the store and found a flare pen and gave it to everybody and said, tr she tried it with me and said, hey, let's use this. That's all this woman Explain ever, what a flare pencil is. So a flare pen is basically a black writing pen that doesn't see that light up there. Yep. If 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 I were still in school, I would be like this, trying to read, and that light would glare down off the pencil lead. And I I kept moving my head. And Miss Waterman said, "What are you moving your head for?" And I said, "I can't read." And she's like, "Oh." So like the next time I saw her, she can I pet she, him? I'm not supposed to no, pet him, right? No, he's he's trying to get my attention because it's past dinner time. Yeah, Joel, come. She, after she saw that happen, the next time I saw her, she, she said, I got these flare pens and she wrote something on the paper because it was making black, unglaring print on the piece of paper. And she said, can you read this? And I said, yes. So she immediately gave them to the teacher and to the para and said, whenever we write for Stephen, let's write it with this. Like, and that's assistive technology, even though we didn't call it that back in those days. That's a low-tech, probably a dollar piece of assistive technology that changed the way I could do my work. Assistive technology doesn't have to cost $10,000. It could be that, that pen or that different paper, different colored paper that you could use that yeah. might help someone. There's low-tech and high-tech. That's why I say you got to think outside the box and be willing to try anything. Even if you get a binder and, and have the kid write on an angle right. on a binder, that's low-tech. Yeah, Adapted technology right there. And, and the best teachers I had were teachers, you know, like Mr. England, when Mrs. Tata went to him and said, I tried this graph paper and look what happened. He's like, we're doing that with the whole class. Um, speaking of technology and high tech, 
would you mind or how do you feel comfortable? Can you show us your iPhone and some of the apps and technologies that are, yeah. that allow you to access it? Yes. This is very... I think Apple has been wonderful with their updates and their... It's, it's interesting. Um, so I want to just go back a second and talk about assistive technology because as I grew up, I used some of those things that Miss Waterman had implemented for me and I used some other pieces of assistive technology. But when I was like in my late teens and early 20s, I pretty much denied that I had a visual impairment. And I always used to say, I'm not blind. I'm not, I'm not like all those other people. I really did this. I'm not kidding you. I wouldn't use a white cane. I tried to act like I wasn't blind. Extremely stupid. How'd that work out? It, it was scary. I think back now on some of the things that I did I was at Western and I had a group of friends and we went to the diner one night and the way we crossed the street was I grabbed someone's hand and we ran across the street. You know how dangerous that is? Like, I look at that now and I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? But that's your 19, 20, 21 year old guy mentality, I think, yeah. right? I, I would do stuff like that all the time. And I remember being afraid, but like figuring I had to toughen up. So... As I got older, I basically learned to smarten up. And now I have the 47-year-old way that I do things. <laughs> and I say, there's sometimes I have to make a choice. And I'll say, okay, there's the 47-year-old way to do this or there's the 20-year-old way. <laughs> Nine times out of 10, I pick the 47-year-old way because I don't want to get hurt. Smart. Um, but going back to AT, I really didn't embrace using AT until I had my second job. And I was selling AT for a living. And I was selling people magnifiers and dark writing pens and dark writing, you know, dark line pads, large print calendars, talking clocks, talking watches, braille technology, um, you know, kitchen gadgets and all these different things. And I, as I did that, I started to buy some of the stuff and bring it into my own home. And I started using it and I was like, it's, this is so much easier. And that's when I really started to understand the importance of the tools and using the tools. And I tell people all the time now, unfortunately, the way the world is, there is not one tool that you can use that will accomplish everything that you have to do in your day. So um, I bring all that up because my iPhone is one tool that I use in my day to accomplish many tasks. And... Apple has been smart enough to where they have built in accessibility features into their operating system. It used to be years ago, back in the like the 19 late 90s, early 2000s, if you had to have assistive technology on a computer, it had to come from a third party. So, if they changed Windows, when it went from Windows 98 to Windows XP, we couldn't use our screen reading technology for a couple of months. You had to hold off on XP because the company that made that screen reading technology had to catch up to Windows XP. They didn't have the architecture that they needed from Microsoft. Microsoft wouldn't even give that to, to them at that time. But when Apple came out with the iPhone and they built VoiceOver, which is a screen reader into the iPhone, when they did that, 
that changed the the architecture of the field of assistive technology because they built it into their operating system. It wasn't something that was an afterthought by a third party. Yeah, kudos to Apple for that. Right, and so now because Apple did that, Android does similar things. Google does similar things. Microsoft has made huge progress in their accessibility in Windows now. It's it's becoming a situation where the third-party software still exists, but when I have to do a consultation or an evaluation for someone, I can now recommend free solutions to people, which is awesome. Yeah. And because when you start involving money into assistive technology and you're involving the school system or the state, then you're it's taking time because bureaucracy has to happen. Politics happen. If money has to get spent, it takes time to spend that money. But if we can recommend like magnifying the screen right in Windows for a student and that can happen right today, then they're getting that access they need immediately and not having to wait for a purchase order to get cut for someone to buy, you know, a third party piece of software. So um, do you want to hold it towards me over and show something? Yeah. I uh, Don't you drag your finger? Yeah. Right now, I, I, I have voiceover turned off. I'm going to turn it on and it's going to talk and it's going to talk really fast. I'm going to slow it down. Voiceover on. Messages. I've got an older phone. I'm going to slow this down. Character words. Speaking rate. 60. 55. Okay. So now you see... Cellular. Four. Messages. Messages has a box around it. Yep, I see. That it. is the voiceover cursor. So now I can, I can navigate around my phone. And I'm doing this backwards. So it's... Calendar. Wednesday, November 18th. So it just went to calendar and it read me the date. And I can navigate with one finger, one item at a time, forward or backwards. Photos, camera, maps, notes. Or I can go backwards. Maps, camera, photos, calendar, messages. Find our text from earlier. You, you want to read a couple of those? Yeah. I think they're all appropriate. They are. I'm going I'm to just, I'm going to do this fast. I'm going to turn it off. And I also have my phone in dark mode. Okay. Black background with white text yep. works well for me because you're taking that glare away. And I have the font blown up to 100%. And, and, and that's larger text in Apple. And I have it set to bold. So uh. I can. So what I've basically done is taken a look at all the different accessibility features that are built in here and I'm using all the ones that I can use work best so I'm not just using voiceover like I I could right now voiceover is turned off and I could read all these texts myself but when I get tired of doing that I turn voiceover on and I let it do it so I think this is actually from your wife Hmm. so I we can I can turn it on and voiceover on messages message conversation so when she got to my house, she said here, and I said, and I can actually, I think I can scroll backwards through these. That's awesome. I also feel I, my background is set to, to dark and black with the white font, and I feel it's, it's easier on the eyes, and it's better... I don't know, someone suggested it to me, and as soon as they did it, my eyes and my head and my headaches, and it was just like a good visual uh, it's, friendliness. It's, it's a break. And a break. For the, for the eyes, right? Yes. You're looking at screens as a teacher. You're looking at screens 
constantly with a black background. I suggest the black background if you're listening. Yep, well, thank you for sharing. Mode. We had dark mode. Sorry. We had a little show and tell. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you. I think you're a wonderful person. You're, you do a great job at NEAT. Someone I know speaks very highly of you. Um, <laughs> you know, she may or may not be your boss. Um, but uh, you're doing a great job. You're helping others. You have a wonderful story. And I just feel honored to sit down and talk with you. Um, maybe someday you can get me to chase a storm. That's a big if. I don't even like going in the basement when it's dark, you know. I run downstairs to turn off the light and I run back up. You know, I just don't want something something to get me, you know. I, I understand that. So, I but know. someday we'll, we'll chase a storm, continue to do your push-ups and chin-ups because, um, you know, we have that friendly competition. Mm-hmm. You, this whole podcast was just like a promotion of uh, teacher assistants and paraprofessionals and teachers. Um, so thank you for that. You know, that means a lot to me. Um, and just, and then your sharing of your assistive technology and Joel was wonderful and well-behaved. <laughs> um, so neat, neat, New England assistive technology. If you could look them up at Twitter, neat with Steve. If you want to contact uh, Steve, it's 860-286-3100. And it's Steve Flemigetti at oakhillct.org. Steve, you're the man. Any closing remarks? Yes. I'm going to try to be really short with this, but I have brought a check to donate to your friends of Feeney. Whoa. Because I know that what you're doing is so important. And basically... I lost my dad 10 years ago to cancer. I was 37 years old at that time. I don't even want to think what that would be like if I was a kid. Okay. I still have days where that's hard for me. Life does not come with a book of instructions. And when I found out that that's what you were doing, it like, you say you look up to me, but I look up to you in this organization that you're doing. Like, I miss my dad every day. And this just touched me and I said, you know what, I'm donating to this organization because I know that if my dad were living, he would think this was so cool. So I just want you to know that this this is huge to me. I've been thinking about this ever since I saw you last year at the trick or treat thing that we did. Oh, yep. And you were there and, and you were talking about what you do and helping these kids. I can't even fathom if I was like five or 10 years old and I lost a parent. I, I sat with my dad when he passed away and it was like the best gift I could have ever had. But, you know, like, that's a hard thing. And so I, I just want you to know how much I love this organization. So I'm really touched I'm, by that. That is, I got a check in my pocket for you. All right. Um, well, that's a pleasant surprise. And I thank you so much for your conversation. And I appreciate your generosity and your thoughtfulness. And, you know, I couldn't imagine, again, I'm with you, losing a parent uh, as an adult is a completely heartbreaking. So, you know, times that by a thousand for a child. Um, but I, again, appreciate your support. It was wonderful having you on here. We would love to have you come to an event, volunteer. Um, you are a friend of Feeney, Steve, and I'm friends of Steve. So oh. <laughs> I you, should start with my I'm going to get a shirt. Friends, friends of Okay. Steve, you know, friends of Steve. Right. <laughs> um, 
Well, great way to end. I really like how you held that to surprise to the end. That means a lot. It's special. Um, this is Steve from Neat. And, uh, you know, we're going to end right there. I'm going to shout out one more thing about French cleaners in the shirt. You want one, go see them. Um, and our next guests are going to be Jessica Cortez, Mar Mar Cortez Marquez or Dennis House or Chuck Minahan. But I don't know if they're going to match up to Steve's interview. This was fantastic. 40 minutes with Feeney. We might be at 50 minutes with Feeney. Um, but again, thank you again. We had a great conversation. All the links will be in the podcast. Uh, you chase tornadoes. You have a wonderful clock collection. You're just a wonderful person. Thank you, Steve. Thank you to all my friends. Contact Steve. He's a great guy. Thank you to Dave from Direct Line Media. And we'll see you next episode.